Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Hello, I'm Dr. Albert Rizzo and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Reese. And our topic is telemedicine, particularly tele-ICU medicine, and how it has evolved during this pandemic. Dr. Reese received his MD degree at Chicago Medical School, and he completed his MBA at the Kellogg School of Management of Northwestern University. As Medical Director for Adult Critical Care and the Telecritical Care Program for Advocate Aurora Health System, he oversees clinical and financial outcomes, integration, and process improvement initiatives for Advocate Aurora's 34 ICUs located at 26 hospitals in the Advocate Aurora Telecritical Care Program. The 768-bed tele-ICU program he oversees represents one of the largest programs in the country. Dr. Reese has authored numerous articles and book chapters on telecritical care and its impact on the quality and cost of healthcare delivery and has lectured extensively on the topic, including at national conferences. Let's start out, Dr. Reese, with you telling us really about how you ended up where you are with the interest in telemedicine, and pretty much the current focus of your career is overseeing this large network of ICU beds on a telemedicine platform. How did that all start? It actually started about 20 years ago. I had just completed my MBA at Kellogg, and I was sitting at my desk saying, what am I going to do with my extra time? I just happened to get a fax across the desk saying that Advocate Healthcare is looking for a director of EICU at that time it was called EICU. I had no idea what EICU was. So what do you do? You pick up the phone. I called. There was one pilot program in Centaurin, West Virginia. I called the CMO of the company that provided the software, and I called the medical director at Centera. And when I heard about what the technology, how they used it, I just sat back and I said, this is the future of medicine. Now, obviously, it took a lot of time for people to adapt to that. There are a lot of naysayers. I remember giving a grand rounds at a university system about a year later after I'd started, and I got laughed out of the room saying, you can never do this. You can't take care of patients in the ICU critically and, and telemedically. And about two years ago, they actually called me to consult because they were starting their own program. So, you know, it usually takes physicians about 17 years to change their ways, but I think over time, I initially got interested because when I learned a little bit more about the technology and we never knew how to use it, there was a way to reduce length of stay and reduce morbidity and mortality and, and, and also identify ways to reduce cost. And over the years, I think you, you know the, the use evolved. Being one of the original people, we were just given some camera views, some audio, and then uh, we realized we could provide evidence-based practices across all critical care patients, what I call population management of critical care patients. We could reduce the burnout, some of the older physicians and nurses. As you know, that critical care is a very physically trying profession. And as people started to get out of critical care at the age of 55 to 60, they still had significant experience and significant brain power. And you could put those people in the tele-ICU and use their expertise. And the other thing is really, we could have a way of centralizing data collection. 
we're a very data-driven organization and without data, you don't know how to make improvements. And so the tele-ICU provides a way of getting data from all the patients, risk adjusting it to look at ways to, to further improve the care of the patients. Great. Let me, let me go back to the physicians you mentioned, the manpower issue. The boots on the ground in many of your ICUs come from varying backgrounds and different training levels, and they also have different levels of support. Your EICU physicians, as I understand it, also come from various disciplines, critical care surgeons, critical care medical docs, anesthesiologists. How do you address maintaining some of the standards of care or guidelines when you have such a diverse group of physicians, both in your EICU home base, as well as those various ones out in the different ICUs that you're covering across states at this point? The first way I look at that is about 90% of critical care is the same, whether you're in a medical ICU, med surge ICU, a neuro ICU, CV surgery ICU. We're lucky because we're large enough during the day and at night, especially we have five different intensivists working in the tele-ICU hub. And amongst those, we have surgical critical care physicians, anesthesia, medical. And so you've got a team. Sometimes, you know, we, we help each other out. We look at different CTs of the abdomen, there may be a surgical intensivist, but also using that expertise, some of the sites we cover, because we cover 42 ICUs, they may not even have an intensivist on staff, in which case there's the expertise from different angles of care. So I think just partially because of the volume that we, we have, the number of different clinicians, we have that expertise. And then, you know, you can always, you know, call one of your bedside colleagues, a neurosurgeon, for a specific question. We have a, a technology called Perfect Serve where we can catch them whether they're in the OR or at home, et cetera, for that, those few cases where we really need the sub-sub-specialization. And the same thing with our nurses. Our nurses come from, we have 14 nurses working every shift and they come from different avenues, different critical care. And they all have to have at least five years experience before they can work in the tele-ICU hub. So I think that's the way we, we maintain the, the clinical quality. And then we track our, our interventions in terms of how do we do uh, peer review. We track our interventions and we categorize them three different levels, depending on the intensity of the intervention. We expect a certain amount of interventions per shift. We also will look because the data shows that the initial view of a patient when they are admitted to the IC will reduce their the shorter the uh, time from initial onset of critical care physician viewing the patient, looking at the patient, decreases mortality and, and, and length of stay. We can actually, we do track how quickly our intensivists see the patient on admission. And we actually have a rule that the patient needs to be viewed by a nurse within the first 15, 20 minutes and by a critical care physician within the first hour of admission. How many of your uh clinicians in the EICU continue to also do bedside critical care? The majority of them do. We have a few that are full-time that as they got older, they didn't want to do cardiac surgery anymore. A couple have you know medical issues that they can't be at the bedside and still are, are, are extraordinary clinicians. But the majority, probably 90% work both sides of the camera. Getting back to the comment you made about all the data that has accumulated I know looking at some of the things you've published in the past and working with you when you covered our ICUs, things like ventilator bundles and weaning seem to be a way to facilitate that by using these critical care physicians around the clock, collecting data and 
and going through checklists in many ways. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the important things we learned is that you can't just practice telemedicine and apply it and get the, the benefits. It's a collaborative effort on both sides of the camera. So I think, you know, not only, and it's not just the technology, it's not the technology, it's how you use the technology you have, but also tele-ICU is a facilitator of change management. For every successful program, what we've done is we've looked at the bedside workflow of how they manage a patient, whether it's a ventilator patient and sedation withdrawal and the spontaneous breathing trials or DVT prophylaxis, whatever it may be. We look at the workflow and we integrate the telemedicine, the tele-ICU into their workflow. But for every project we've had, we've realized there are opportunities in the bedside workflows, certain omissions, certain delays, that by going through the workflow, we improve that workflow also. So it's really a facilitator of change with what the bedside does. And so I think working together and then seeing the data, you entertain a project, you put it in place, you accumulate data, you look at the data, and then you go month to month and see, has it improved? And where are there some other opportunities? And the benefit of a large system is, sometimes we put in projects at certain sites that are so successful, we take those to the other 33 ICUs in the, in the system. Now, every ICU is a little bit different. So there's a little bit of personalization of the technology where a neurosurgery ICU may have a few different workflows, a few different changes in their workflow that a medical ICU may not have. But you adapt to that. And for every ICU we, we put in a, a workflow, we meet with that team beforehand several times. And then after we put it in place, we do the typical PDSA. We try to see where the opportunities are to avoid issues that we didn't foresee or make improvements. You mentioned the importance of the collaboration between your EICU clinicians as well as those at the bedside. And you mentioned earlier on that about 20 years ago when you got into this, you certainly were in that early adopter phase of, of a device in medicine. And, and I think, and again, what I've experienced and heard from over the years is that sometimes that interaction between the bedside nurses, the EICU clinicians is not always as collaborative as we would like from the beginning. And that's sometimes is a struggle for um, bedside nurses and physicians to deal with an overseeing EICU physician. Can you tell us how that's worked out over the years? And I know you've been able to manage uh, some of those hurdles pretty well. We wore them out. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, I think in the beginning, I think one of the key things that you have to look for when you start a program is look for a champion physician and a champion nurse on the other side of the camera. And you know they have to be respected by their peers and let, let them lead the charge. Nevertheless, there are gonna be clinicians who, this is a new way of practicing. Uh, they're set in their ways, same thing with nurses. And nurses are just as resistant as physicians. But I think the way we've learned to adapt to them is we don't come in and take over. We collaborate with what they do. We, we make their life easier. We take stresses off of their work. We make their work more efficient so they can do what they need to do, which is spend time with the patient. And then you find one successful program and you show the benefits to everybody else in your meetings with your ICU community. And when they see what you've accomplished at one site, you can take that to other sites and they'll buy in. And I think once you, you help them, it's really beneficial. So I'll give you a great example. 
one of our, our 34 ICUs was, has always been the most resistant. After 17 years, they didn't want us in their ICU. They felt that they could do their work much better without us. So COVID came and they were extremely hard hit. They were overworked, stressed, they were fatigued, they were beginning to burn out. So what we did was we took mobile carts and we were the clinicians who responded to rapid responses on the floor. That had originally been the intensivist job to go to RRTs to take care of the patient. We now brought a mobile cart in, the tele-ICU physician took over the role of the physician during the RRTs. And after about 500 RRTs without a serious safety event, they realized the benefit. Now we've got multiple other projects going forward in that ICU. And they're now, the nurses are now and the physicians are calling us to help out with, you know, I just put a line in, I got to go down to the ER, can you follow up on the x-ray, things like that. So I think you have to prove your value, go in little steps. It's uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg approach. You know, she worked for women's rights, but she didn't take one huge case to get to her goal. She took small cases, small steps to get there piecemeal because you can't just come in and win someone over with one one fell swoop. Can you go back to, you mentioned the RRTs and for our listeners, can you tell me what, tell us what the RRTs stand for and also give us some examples of what you were talking about. Yeah, RRTs are what we call rapid response teams and they've been successful over the years in most hospitals. It's whereby any clinician, physician, family member at the bedside or nurse can call for a rapid response team for an unusually rapid heart rate, increasing shortness of breath, a drop in oxygen, all signs of maybe something is developing and to have clinicians, nurses and physicians go to that patient's room, do a differential and make sure nothing significant is going on. And if something is significant, you, you actually intervene earlier and prevent their further deterioration and may perhaps further need to go to a step-down unit or to, to the intensive care unit. And it's shown to reduce mortality and transfers to the ICU. Would you say this is also helpful sometimes in cardiopulmonary resuscitation efforts that occur outside the ICU, being able to have this remote telemedicine capability? Definitely. You know, what, what we'll do is we'll always camera in. We may be the first physician in the room and we'll be the the team leader of the uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. If a bedside physician comes into the room, if they feel comfortable running it, we'll stay in for a while to see if they need any information. So as they're running running the code and busy with ordering different uh, medications and different interventions, we may tell them the last potassium was such and such, this is the patient's history, to be reading out of the chart so they don't have to go back and forth. And then if it's uh, physicians in training, house staff, We'll actually stay in the room the entire time to make sure that that cardiopulmonary resuscitation is handled in the uh, proper ACLS method. I think you mentioned already some of the evolution in the technology that's taken place in tele-ICU. I know initially there were hardwired closed-circuit television screens in each ICU bed, and now we refer to mobile carts and robots. And uh, can you give us a little more information on how you utilize those different capabilities across your 40-plus ICUs? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's what I call uh, centralized versus non-centralized. In centralized tele-ICU, every room in the ICU has a camera. 
In decentralized, you have several mobile carts, either in an ICU or elsewhere in the hospital, that actually requires someone to move the cart into that room. And again, as I say over and over again, it's not the technology, it's how you use the technology you have. So especially during COVID, we found a lot of utility in the mobile carts. You know, we were able to help hospitals manage the acutely, the hypoxemic patients who ordinarily would be in the ICU, but there was no capacity. So we served as a teleconsultation. We weren't in there all the time monitoring or going in every hour to make sure the patient's okay, unless that patient had a cart wheeled into the room. We tracked something called the ROX index, which is oxygenation that we track for COVID patients on supplemental oxygen. And when that deteriorated, it's a sign that they probably need to be transferred to for possible intubation and placement on the ventilator. We actually started using the mobile carts many years ago when we had a serious safety event in one of our emergency departments where a patient was admitted, but that hospital had sometimes as many as eight or 10 boarders in the emergency room for ICU admission. They had a patient who was down there for 16 hours and just gradually deteriorated, ended up having a bad outcome. So one of the opportunities we found after doing a, a root cause analysis was they didn't have an intensivist, even though the intensivist came down periodically from the ICU, she had a significant number of sick patients in the ICU. She had to spend most of the time up there. So we actually brought mobile carts down to the emergency department and started monitoring those patients. And not only have we not had a serious safety event now in five years, but we saved the system a significant amount of money just because 20% of the patients by that earlier critical care involvement no longer needed to be admitted to the ICU, but they could be admitted to a lower acuity bed. So during COVID, because of the capacity issues, we now have rolled that emergency department border program out to 17 of our emergency rooms for two reasons, A, patient safety, but also to alleviate some of the stress on our caregivers, the physicians and nurses who are just getting bombarded with patients. You touched on one of my comments that I was going to make, as we've heard repeatedly that the COVID pandemic jump-started the field of telemedicine. And certainly what you're describing is it's really jump-started tele-ICU as well. And, and do you see how things will continue in this manner going forward? Do you think hospitals and intensive care units will be more willing to seek uh, remote tele-ICU monitoring going forward? Yeah, I, I think it, it has made a believer of a lot of people just out of necessity that telemedicine works. So I think more and more people are understanding its, its benefit. My concern is as COVID comes under control, will people continue to use it in the same way they do now, the same intensity? I, I think what, what COVID also taught us is that when you start a tele-ICU program, it is key that you have certain goals in mind. And one of the goals, especially during COVID, was how do you offload the work of the bedside clinicians who are just undergoing more stress, more burnout, more physical fatigue. So during COVID last year, we identified, for instance, 26 different ways that we could use the technology to offload some of the work. Some of it was as simple as taking the technology out of the tele-ICU and also putting it in the, into the individual ICUs at their nurses station, the monitors. So the physicians and nurses could watch their patients and talk to their patients without putting on and taking off their, their PPE, which is time consuming. 
And the other issue in 2019 was the scarcity of PPEs. We were all worried about running out. So it was a way to decrease the amount of PPEs used, plus allow the clinicians to take care of the patients with less exposure. And it goes back even to Ebola, which is a much more contagious disease. We instituted that during the Ebola crisis about six years ago now. You know, other ways we cover more of the hospitalists, we bring our expertise to the hospitalists, to the COVID patients on the floor who ordinarily would be in the ICU or are pretty critically ill and just multiple different ways of using it. I want to get back to the data collection that you talked about, and certainly you're doing a lot of real-time overseeing and monitoring of patients, but I believe you've also used some of this technology to identify early warning trends and ways of intervening before an RRT is necessary or looking at the development of sepsis. Can you comment on your experience in those early warning areas? sort of a, a project of mine that I've had at heart for about five years now. And so there are multiple early warning systems out there. We have some in the tele-ICU we use, but an early warning system usually is too sensitive and, and usually not very specific. And I've found over the years that an early warning system is only as good as putting a clinician at the end of that, that alert. And so about five years ago, we, we entertained a project you know, sepsis is our number one in-hospital killer disease that kills patients, and it is a significant problem. And if you develop sepsis in the hospital, mortality is about 40%, you know, nationally, some sites less and some more. So what we did is we took that early warning system, an alert that we created for sepsis, and we took it out of the chart. It used to go to the chart, and the nurse or the physician would see that alert only when they entered the chart. So we did a pilot where we took that alert and brought it to the tele-ICU and the tele-ICU physician would determine A, sepsis, and then call the bedside to initiate therapy, B, not sepsis and reset the alert for another eight hours, or C, not sepsis and something else is going on. So as I said, we took our worst performing site and within about an eight week period, we saw Fewer patients progressed from sepsis to septic shock. Fewer patients were transferred to the ICU. Fewer patients had RRTs called. More patients' mortality was less. Uh, More people on discharge from the hospital went home and not to nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities. And to make our administration happy, it saved $1,000 per patient with sepsis. So that was so successful that we've now taken the alert in the EMR in the electronic medical record and changed it to a certain degree. We now have a telesepsis hub and we're rolling that out across all 25 hospitals on the med surge floors. And the other thing was, you know, CMS has a compliance data collection where they track hospitals, how well you comply with the therapy of sepsis. In that hospital where we did the pilot, their compliance was 30%. The worst in our system at the time went up to 60%, 100% improvement within uh, eight or nine weeks. So that's that's another way of using it. You've alluded a couple of times during this discussion about the improvement in care that tele-ICU can offer and therefore some cost savings as well as improving outcomes. What I often hear, at least in the past, was that one of the big hurdles to implementation of tele-ICU is a fairly big economic upfront cost of some of the technology and how it affects manpower and intensivists. And can you kind of 
talk about that a little bit? I know you have an MBA background and have looked at the economics of this from a couple right. angles over the years. And I think people thinking about EICU need to hear some of the positives about how this can be offset. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the biggest hurdles, as you said, was the financial cost. And, you know, we talked about a centralized model versus decentralized. Centralized has a camera in every room. Decentralized is you use fewer mobile carts. So one of the ways to reduce your costs, even though it's not as, as good, you go to mobile carts because you, you save on the $7,000 per camera per room. You also, you don't save on nursing hours or physician hours, but where you do the cost savings is by working hand in hand with the bedside, you reduce length of stay and you reduce the cost of the additional stays. You also reduce ventilator days. Being on a ventilator is more costly than being on a ventilator. And those are the main ways to reduce your, your costs. You know, other ways to reduce your costs is, again, it's the technology that you have and not rather than how you use the technology. So you look at your resources. If you have a centralized model, you've got to have similar vital sign tracking equipment. And if you have different products like Philips or GE, you've got to consolidate that and that uniformly put in uniform vital sign monitoring in the ICUs, which is an additional cost. If you don't want to do that, you just use a mobile cart and the vital signs you have. So I think it's, you know, do you have clinicians at the other end? Do you have an EMR at the other end? You don't have to add a lot of cost, but you take what you have and put in place a program that if you're better tomorrow than you are today, then you've used telemedicine efficiently and cost efficiently. And I think, you know, you have to continually improve. Your system, I think you cover several states, maybe over 400 beds. Can you give a sense as to what the penetration of telemedicine, tele-EICU is across the country right now? Do you have a sense as to the penetration? I, I think it's, uh, it's obviously more, obviously you raised the issue of financial costs. So several of the small hospitals, especially the rural hospitals, don't have the resources to spend money on that. So I think in those situations, you have to create a more consultative type model where you put a mobile cart in their ICU and they may have to move it around, but you provide critical care expertise that they may not have at their rural sites. I know there's a national program now called NETSEN we're involved with that uh, is run by the Department of Defense. It's called National Emergency Telecritical Care Network. So that for the next disaster, how do you take the resources nationwide, the clinicians and the technology and de deliver the care that they need in the rural areas and the areas of the, of the country that don't have as many hospitals or resources? Well, that feeds right into one of my closing questions was, what do you see on, on the horizon with regard to how tele-ICU is going to evolve from here? I think, you know, the, the opportunities are unlimited. I, I think I, I mentioned when I first started, you know, I walked in the tele-ICU the first day we went live and I go, now what do I do? And so you learn, you know, over time for opportunities. I think you have to decide how do you take the workload off the bedside? You've got six customers, seven customers. The patient is always the customer. How do you deliver better care? The physician, how do you offload some of the work of the physicians or provide 
care to the bedside where they may not have the physician expertise. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, how do you offload the work for those other service lines? You've got the CEO, the COO, that you've got to deliver better outcomes clinically and, and hopefully financially, because they're the ones who pay for it. You've got the regulatory, because like the sepsis, you've got to provide data and, and, and show benefit with what you're doing. And you've got the payers and the insurance companies to show them that you're working in as cost-effective manner as possible. So you've got to identify your, your customers. You've got to identify your goals. And I think one of the key areas of the future is how to integrate AI. You know, AI has a, is not where it's at yet, but in the future, we'll be able to expand our what we consider average or reality today and use AI to focus on providing solutions to the bedside faster and more efficiently and clinically make improvements for patient care. So th those are the main ways. The metaverse is, is out there. It's the future. So how do you use the metaverse? I've already gone to my IT people with a Microsoft HoloLens and said, I want to be there in three years. And they told me it was too early and told me to come back in a couple of years. So, but the metaverse, the AI, that's the future of the technology and how you can apply the technology to the bedside care. Well, we may have to come back in a few years and have this discussion again. I think, first of all, I mean, your, your experience and your perspective on this is more than many people could have given us today. And I really yeah. appreciate the time that you shared with us and your insights. Any last comments? I mean, I think you covered a lot. No, I, I think still for those naysayers is just try using it to your benefit. Yeah, identify what you need and see if the technology can't even help you a little bit. Because, you know, the practice of medicine is way more complicated today than it's ever been. And it's going to get more complicated, you know, with subspecialization and more technology and more, more medications to use. Thank you. Thank you. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.